All right. So yesterday, my wife uh, did this YMCA uh, triathlon thing. Okay, nobody cares. Great. So she, she's not, I don't know, better than last year. Uh, they said, how'd she do? So anyway, uh, it's, called, it's called Try for Fun. And everybody kept asking me, they're like, how come you're not doing it? And I said, because it's called Try for Fun. This is not fun. So I don't mind the swimming or the biking, but seriously, I do not run if I can help it. Being chased by zombies, sure. But <laughs> on cue. That's how it goes. Actually, there's one of the reasons I don't go backpacking because it combines my two least favorite activities, which is walking and camping. I didn't say you can't enjoy it. You can enjoy it all you want. Just don't invite me because I will not be going. Uh, welcome to Element. Uh, if you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on Live in that. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with that. And my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Now, uh, one of the announcements that I'm supposed to do this morning is I'm supposed to talk about the next men's activity, which is beer tasting. Again... Beer tasting, not guzzling. We're not going out and making our own beer bongs and showing up. So we're going, woo! <laughs> okay, it's it's not happening. It's, it's beer tasting. We're going up to. Uh, there's a lot of breweries around here, and in the scriptures it tells you, you know, God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men, gladden, not stumble around and can't see straight in front of you. So what we're doing is, is we're trying to redeem that whole idea. So there's a couple of breweries. This time we're going up to the first ones in Paso Robles. We'll come back to one that's in Atascadero. So we're going to those two. If you're a guy and you want to go, I believe it's April 24th. What, what's, what's, what's the date today? 22nd. 20, what? So it's the 28th. It's, it's next Sunday. I should just say it's next Sunday. huh? That'd probably help you. Next Sunday, 1 p.m., if you're a guy and you want to go and you're over 21, <laughs> gather with us and we'll be taking off at 1 o'clock to go up to the two different uh, breweries and then we'll come back and sit in the car and make you drive home. So, again, not too much. We good? Some people freak out. It's like I was talking to somebody last week and they said, I brought my dad for the first time and he was here and, her, and someone talked about beer tasting. and he was like, what? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. Tasting, you know, unless it's a porter. Other than that, <laughs> why don't you guys stand me reading God's word? <laughs> I know, I just alienated half the room. This is Ephesians chapter four, verse fifteen, and it says, "Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." Let's pray, Father. This morning, I ask that we, as a people, would be those who grow up and mature into the things that you call us to, that we would be those who seek out forgiveness and and reconciliation, that we, in the way that we live, would honor you and that the world would know that you are a God who is alive and who has saved your people. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So this is Genesis week 63, and I have good news. After today, we only have 10 Genesis messages left, and we're done with Genesis. You're not supposed to be that excited about it, by the way. It's kind of like that cheesy's 80 Christian rock song. It's the fun. 
I know, I make fun of country music and then I go and do that. I know, I know, I know how it goes. Uh, I'm going to briefly give you a recap. If you are newer, you missed a lot of it, or, or maybe you just haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I'll give you a recap of what we've been going through. So I know you probably said, I could have skipped a whole year and just started here. No, you need the whole thing, so go back and listen to it online. But this is kind of where we're at. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything, creates everything good. Everything's in perfect peace. This is the word called shalom. Everything's in the right place, in the right time, at the right way. He puts man in the middle of this good creation. And a man's supposed to have stewardship and responsibility over this creation. And it's almost as soon as he puts man in here, what man does is they break relationship with God, and all of a sudden creation is thrown into chaos and disorder. And that's chapter 3, that's sin. Genesis 4 through 6 is about depravity and how men just keep going farther and farther off the rails. Genesis 6 through 8 is about the flood. Genesis 9, God comes and restores relationship, not just with humanity, but with all of creation again. You get to chapter 12. Chapter 12 focuses on a guy named Abraham. Uh, God shows up and says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing to the entire world because I have blessed you. The blessing is supposed to pass through you to everybody else around you. And so from Genesis 12 on, Genesis focuses on this one family, Abraham's family. So you have Abraham. Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 13 kids, 12 of which are male. Uh, Two of those 12 males are one guy named Joseph and then one guy named Judah, who it seems the rest of Genesis from where we are focuses upon. Uh, Joseph is the son of his father and his dad's favorite wife because his dad essentially had four wives. And so he's the son of this, so he's the favorite kid. This, he, the, his parents just love him. This is the kid that can be a total jerk to every other kid, and their parents think it's your kid's fault for some reason. Dad, you're like, oh, I know that kid. Yes, it's that kid. That, that's who it is. Joseph has a dream that all of his brothers and his parents are going to bow down to him as their ruler. He tells them this dream. Nobody likes it. His brothers get really upset because he's also a tattletale and keeps getting them in trouble. So they trust him up and sell him off into slavery. Well, as a slave, Joseph gets unjustly accused of rape and he spends his late teens and all of his 20s in jail. Eventually, through God's twisting of fate, Joseph ends up helping Pharaoh in Egypt, where he is in jail, and he becomes the second most powerful man in the entire world at that time. <clears throat> so Joseph's life, it actually starts to get a little bit better. Uh, and there's, but there's this whole unresolved section of his life called his family. And we're dealing with this over probably the next last week of the next three weeks because it takes a long time to deal with family issues and a whole lot of time to deal with reconciliation. So it has been almost 20 plus years since Joseph has talked to his family. Uh, there's a bitter famine in the entire land of Egypt and that stretches into the land of Canaan where his family resides. And so when they can no longer handle it, Joseph's dad says, sends 10 of Joseph's brothers down to Egypt to buy food. And when they show up, they, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him because he's probably, you know, 40 plus years old. And he's dressed like an Egyptian and so they can't tell. And so what Joseph does, because they don't know who he is, is he proceeds to test them. And I told you last week, if there is someone who has done evil to you in your life, then you've got to make sure you can trust them before you can let them back in again. I told you throughout the book of Genesis, it talks about this. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness means you let go of all the angerness, the bitter, the animosity in your heart towards somebody else so you can live the life that God calls you to. That takes one person. It just takes you. Reconciliation takes two people. And reconciliation means you start the process to become close again. I told you last week, it's like if a wife gets smacked around by her husband and he shows up and says, oh, I'm really sorry. Well, great. You know, forgiveness can take place. You can let go of the bitterness in your heart, but reconciliation takes time and probably some anger management classes in the midst of that. And so what Joseph does, he takes his brothers and he throws them into jail for three days. And we're like, woohoo, 
Awesome. We'd all like to have our own jail. They protest. We are honest men. We have an old father and, and a younger brother. And that, would, again, would be Joseph's only full-blooded brother, which is Benjamin. And so after three days, he releases them from jail, keeps one of the brothers kind of like a hostage until they can go home and then come back and bring their youngest brother to him. Joseph probably wondered if his younger brother is actually still alive. Because, you know, he, they took him out. So what are they going to do the, to his younger and probably weaker brother? And so they go back to their dad. They tell him the whole story. The dad says, there is no way in the world I am going to send you guys back down to Egypt with the only other kid I actually like. Hey, but the famine is so severe that they eat all the food they brought back from Egypt. And eventually Jacob has to relent. And he says, you know, you guys have to go back. And so Judah at this point, uh, the, the other brother that kind of looks at throughout the book of Genesis at the end here, he steps into the role of leadership of this family. He takes on what's called the firstborn right and the firstborn blessing. He pledges himself for Benjamin's safety, and he becomes a man. So you can open your Bibles at Genesis 43. And last week I ended and told you that if anything is to change, men need to have days like Judah. We've got to step into that, where we say, put it on me, blame me, I'm going to fix it. Now, in one sense, this is what Jesus does. He takes responsibility for all of us, but we, in that, in turn, step into the responsibility that he calls us to, where in one sense we say, this is my church and my faith and my family and my life and my friends. I'm going to take care of this because God has so saved me. I'm going to live a life that honors and reflects him. That now becomes Judah's lifestyle. And I think his dad, Israel, you know, Jacob, has to look at his son. And this has to be a good day for him because his son is now finally becoming fit to be a patriarch, to be a leader of this family. And that's kind of one of my prayers for all of you guys that come in here at Element, all of you, all of you men. I hope if you come in here as a boy, you will leave as a man because the whole history of redemption changes from here on out because Judah steps up. So Genesis 43, verse 11, this is where we left off last week. It says, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, if you've got to go back and we've got to get some more food because we're going to die, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. I mean, it's been a really long time since the brothers came back with the food. Simeon's been in jail a really long time. And so he says, you know, he might be mad that you've taken so long to come back. How about you take him a present? I hear people like presents, so take him one. And carry your present down to the man, a little bomb. That's like chapstick. I hear Egypt's hot, and I hear chapstick is nice in the hot weather. It's cherry-flavored. He might like that. And a little honey, gum, myrrh, some pistachio nuts, and almonds. It's like those crappy Christmas gifts. It's like that, that they give you, and you're like, what do I do with this? You put it out, nobody eats it. So what do you do? You rewrap it, and you give it to somebody else. I mean, Israel is not a regifter, but, but Joseph just might be after he gets this gift. Or not. Okay, whatever. Really what's happening here is it's making a, a distinction to show you that when Joseph was sold into slavery, the slave traders that bought him and took him to Egypt were bringing the exact same things down to Egypt. It's showing you how the story is coming together. Everything is beginning to fit together. And it shows you the difference between the brothers and Joseph's character. He says, take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And if it's not, he's probably telling his kids to buy double the amount of grain so they never have to go back to that crazy place called Egypt again. He says, take also your brother, and he leaves the most painful part for last, and he emphasizes your brother. He doesn't call him Benjamin. He says, your brother, he's blood. Take care of him. Don't let him get sold into slavery. Don't let him die. Take care of your brother. And arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he, that's God Almighty, not the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. 
And so Jacob you know, says his peace, he invokes God's blessing, and he leaves it in God's hands. So you see that Jacob actually did learn something throughout the course of his life and all the trials that God took him through. Verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now the phrasing in Hebrew doesn't mean that they actually came and stood in front of Joseph. It means they came to the place that Joseph had charge of. So wherever Joseph was distributing grain from, that's where they went to. Joseph had the authority over it, so that's where they went. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, and again, they don't necessarily see him, but he sees them. He said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Now, the first time they come to Egypt, you know, they get yelled at, picked apart, accused of being spies, sent to jail for three days, had a brother stripped away from them, and now they show up and they're invited to Joseph's house for dinner. This can be a little scary because most officials at this time had dungeons and jails in their own residences. It's kind of like if you drive through town and the sheriff pulls you over and he cuffs you and pistol whips you and throws you in jail. And you drive through a year later and he pulls you over again and goes, hey, how's it going? Come over to my house for dinner. And you're going, I have cable. I have seen this movie. Right? Either I'm going to be his food or he's going to sew me into a crazy experiment and I'm going to end up like a centipede. I've seen it. This is what's happening. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house, and the men were afraid. Of course you would be, because they had cable. Because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants. And again, this is going back to what happened to Joseph when he was sold into slavery. They fell upon him, they tied him up, they sold him into slavery. That's what they're saying. And then they say, and seize our donkeys which I know is a great fear of yours, right? If there's a donkey jacking, you're like, I don't want to be part of that. Egypt must be like East L.A., they're thinking. You know, they got carjackings and muggings and beatings. It's a whole nine yards. It's Egypt. Look out. Verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house, the guy that runs the house, and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we brought other money down to, with us to buy food. We didn't mean to steal. We're really sorry. Please don't donkey jack and kill us. That's what they're saying. We don't know who put the money in our sacks. They're very careful not to insinuate this official or Joseph or anybody really had anything to do with it. We know it wasn't you. Please don't hurt us. We know that. And besides, we brought a fruit basket and chapstick. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And so they're like, Okay, I'm confused, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So they're in the middle of this confusion. Their brother comes back. Things seem to be getting better. You know, in Hebrew, it shows the steward is part of this whole ruse to trick the brothers and to see if they can actually trust them. The brothers think it's a miracle. They're going to get lunch. Verse 24. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, when he had given their donkey spotter, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. I love that. So get the fruit basket ready. He's going to be coming. It's, it's great. He'll really like it. It's full of nuts. Like we are. For they heard that they should eat bread there. Where Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Here they do it again. This is one of the dreams Joseph had. They're going to bow down to me. We will not bow down to you. We will sell you into slavery is what we'll do. And here they bow down to him again. And he inquired about their welfare. This is again the word. This is the word shalom. He inquired about their peace. How is the peace with you? How is your peace with God? How are things going with you? 
and said, is your father well? Again, the word shalom. How is the shalom? How is the peace of your father? And the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Is my dad still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. They bowed before him again. Verse 29, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. This is his biological brother. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. And as you have seen, Joseph is a crier. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself said, serve the food. So he doesn't want anyone to think he's a crier, right? I don't think he's that much. He comes up, what's up? Yeah, I washed up, serve the food. So it's total dude. What what the text is trying to do is try to convey to you the difference between Joseph's character and the brother's character. Okay, Joseph doesn't throw them into the pit in his house. He brings them in. He eats food with them. When the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, they throw him in a pit and they eat right outside. They don't serve him anything at all. So it's showing you the difference between their two characters. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And that is racism. Okay? Racism just doesn't happen in the deep south of the United States of America. Racism is a problem ever since sin has entered the world. One group of people thinking they're better than another group of people. Uh, as time goes on, the Egyptians came to a place when Greeks started to take over the world. Egyptians wouldn't kiss a Greek. If you were a Greek and you had some utensils and you invited an Egyptian to your house, they might come, but they wouldn't eat with your utensils because you might have eaten a cow or an ox with it, and that was totally deplorable, and how dare you eat something they wouldn't eat, and there's something just totally wrong with you. It, it doesn't go to today because I was in Cairo a few years ago, and I, and I had, a, had a bacon cheeseburger at the Hard Rock Cafe in Cairo. But they still don't eat pigs. So the bacon was like beef jerky on top. I don't know why I'm telling you this. If you ever go to Cairo, just get a burger, okay? Don't get the cheese is awful. The bacon is not bacon. Just a hamburger. I don't know why I'm telling you. Whatever. Okay, so nothing to do with this. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. They're in amazement because Joseph somehow knows how to line them up according to their ages, which is crazy. Like, how does he know how to do this? Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank wine and were merry with him. So it's kind of weird. You got like steak, 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 five steaks, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream, gallon of ice cream, wine, 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 case of wine. You know, what's he doing? Is he trying to make, you know, Benjamin fat? No. What he's doing is he's testing the brothers. He's trying to see if they're still the same. Joseph is the favored kid brother. How the brothers respond? With jealousy. They sell him into slavery. Joseph is seen if they're going to start bickering in Hebrew because they don't know that he speaks Hebrew. And there's maybe start saying, let's whack that one too. He's getting too much stuff. And so he's listening to it. He's seeing their reaction. They are all getting blessed, but one of them is getting really blessed. And so he's watching them. And the moral of the story, again, that the scriptures keep coming back to is it is okay to test before you trust. In the New Testament, Paul and the writers say that, that we are tested a lot of times on a daily basis. Sometimes it has to do with qualifications for leadership. Sometimes it has to do with simply how we are going to live our lives. Let me just show you a few from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3, 12, and 13. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 2 Corinthians 2.9, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 2 Corinthians 8.1, 
I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. Examine yourselves to see whether if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you, indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Testing and trials are natural and normal. Over and over, the book of Genesis and the New Testament, all the scriptures talk about how testing has its role. You see this in the life of Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. When, when Abraham gets his promised son, he's putting all of his effort and energy into that, and God comes to test Abraham's faith. And it says in Genesis 22, verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. And I've told you this many times throughout the book of Genesis because it keeps coming back to this, that a test is an experience through which a person's true values, their true commitments, and their true beliefs are going to actually be revealed. It will let you know what you actually believe because sometimes we don't know what we actually believe until we're in the middle of a test. And the scriptures keep coming back to this. Testing has its role. In the, in the Old Testament, testing is only used in a reference to the people of God. It is never used in a reference to heathen nations. It is only applied to people of faith. It is never applied to the ungodly. And so testing comes to us from God. It is reserved for those in a relationship with God. Even though it is painful, it becomes an act of love on his part. In James 1, 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is why when people come to Element and they say, you know, we're going to make Element our home, I love it when they ask us questions. Every once in a while, someone will say, hey, you want to go out to lunch? And I don't turn down a free lunch. So I'm like, sure. And they take me out and they ask me a bunch of questions about who we are, how we got here. And, and, and I like that because it shows they're testing the waters to see who we are. Too many people go to a church and it's like, oh, hey, you know, they're nice or I like this or I like that. Then months or years down the road, you find out the pastors and the board's like a total heretics. And you're like, what do we do? What do you do with that? I mean, a test. You've got to come in and take some time. It's one of the reasons that, that we do the gospel class, because you guys can go through eight weeks of figuring out who we are, and then you walk out and figure out maybe we're just a bunch of heretics, you know, and we don't know, but you now know. You can go through that, ask us questions, figure out who we are. You've got to take time to figure out where you're going to commit your family to. In 1 John 4, 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I do think at some point this idea of testing can go overboard. A couple weeks ago, um, I'm going to my car at the grocery store, and there's this lady, and she's struggling with all of her stuff to get to her car. So I run over to help her. It's like, man, you're going to dump over your car. You know? And so I go to help her, and she's like, I thought I was like, going to mug her. I'm like, no, I just want to help you. Get away from me. I'm like, you could beat me up. Have you seen my size? I'm like a buck fifty, sopping wet. Come on. You know? Get away from me. I'm like, all right. And I feel bad for trying to help her at that point. It's like, what you, so sometimes I think it's, it's too much, but I, I think a lot of people don't test enough. I think, I think we just come in and we trust everybody around us, and sometimes we shouldn't do that. You know, it, it, it's like it, we've got a lot of young people that go to Element. You know, young adults, a lot of single people, right? And you're, and you're maybe dating, looking to get married. Maybe you're getting married. Maybe you want to find somebody so you can get married or something like that. And so many people jump into so many relationships so fast, they don't even look at what the other person's like. I was doing premarital counseling for a couple in my office. Not you. I'm not talking about you. Okay, whatever. Okay. 
So they, they, come, they come to my office, and they're sitting down, and, and I goes, are you guys believers? You know, because I need to figure out, you know, where they're, where they're at in their spiritual life. And so I go, are you believers? And the girl says, I'm a Christian, and so is he. And he says, I'm not a Christian. And she goes, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and I'm like, holy cow, you guys have no idea. It's like there's oh, totally overlooking everything. And this goes not just for dating relationships. It goes for relationship with the job. I mean, you might think, oh, you know, th- this job's the greatest thing in the world, but you haven't looked into it. Maybe the entire business is built on a, on a web of lies where they're stealing people. You've got to figure these things out. So you've got to ask some questions, and you take some time, and you test the waters. So I'm going to give you some very practical stuff just for a second. If you're unmarried, I always talk to the married people, so I'll give you something for you. If I've got you going, oh, thank God, i got something today. Or you're looking for a job. We'll do that. So I'm going to tell you why you should slow down and test the waters. I'll give you three things in this. Number one, you do not get to know a person or a job or whatever over a short period of time. Uh, there, there are what's called four stages of bonding, which I'll hit in just a second. The second reason is, is you actually need time to bond. You need time for a bond to grow. Uh, and so there's four stages of bonding. The first stage is what's called the scouting stage. This is where you test the water. You see if you really like it. Some people call this the let's dance phase. Hey, we're going out. Let's party. Let's have some fun. Woo, do you like me? I like you kind of thing that's why i don't dance (laughs) whatever okay the next stage is what's called the infatuation stage this is the honeymoon phase if it's a job this is like when you when you really want that job and then you get it and you go to work there and you're like oh this job is great i'm so glad i have a job and six months later you're like every other whiner that works there it's like oh i hate my boss nobody cares about me they don't pay me enough i need more of it and you sound like everybody else you know that's because that first part you're in the infatuation stage and then you just got over it in a relationship between men and women that actually lasts between nine and twelve months because you don't get to see how real the other person is yet it's when you're actually trying to make the other person think that you're a catch you know you try and hide all, all the things you show up with like you know flowers and, and chocolates because it's your disguise it's like they can't see who i really am you know, if, you're, if you're bipolar, this is when the other person doesn't know you're bipolar because you're always fun and excited and you haven't crashed into your pit of despair yet. <laughs> Can I not be honest? <laughs> All right. Third stage is called, this is the reality phase. The reality phase. This is when you know, the, the job does something where it's like, I don't like this job. This person just did this. Or maybe you, in a relationship, it's like you know, the perfect person does something less than perfect. They yell at you. They're mean to you. Something like that. Uh, I once dated this girl who loved really old Barbara Streisand movies. And she would always quote these stupid Barbara Streisand movies to me. And so I'm sitting there one day, and she comes up, and she goes, she goes, love is never having to say you're sorry. And I said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. She's like, what? I heard it in a movie. And I go, and that's why it's dumb. Barbara Streisand's more... Never mind. <laughs> there is a, relation, a reason you shouldn't be in a relationship with certain people, because they're idiots, Okay, And when you figure that out, it's like, man, this is going to make my life pure hell. If it is, step out of it. Step out of it. My wife, not an idiot. Not an idiot. She would never say something like that, and I apologize all the time. <laughs> all the time. And so the last stage in this, when you walk through these stages, it's called the commitment phase. Okay, You can call this fish and cut bait, whatever you want to do. It's called the commitment phase. This is where you decide, I'm going to stay with this job. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do my best to step in here and bring God's light to a bad situation. Or just, you know, I'm going to work really hard and stop complaining because God calls me to do that. And this job is a privilege. It's a privilege. It's not a right. If you're in a relationship, it's the place where you decide, you know what, are we going to continue? Are we going to get married? Are we going to let this go? You look at the reality that life is going to be with this person, that marriage is hard work it's never easy and so you decide i'm going to be a giver and a servant to this person for the rest of my life that's the second thing and then the third one is the reason why you take time is you protect yourself from getting attached too quickly you guard yourself from getting emotionally and physically tempted with too many people 
this is especially true when it comes to dating relationships. Movies and TVs and magazines all say the same thing today. They all say it's, oh, really good for you to hook up with a lot of people. You need to do that. Well, you know what? Recent research in the last two years have shown that's not a good idea. It's a terrible idea. When you're making out or having sex with somebody, oxytocin is released into your brain. And this functions as a bonding agent. So if you're married, it's great, all right? Bond a lot, all right? At Element, we want you to bond multiple times a week, thus says the Lord. (laughs) If you're married, all right? But that chemical doesn't distinguish between inside of marriage and outside of marriage. And so when people are having sex and hooking up with multiple people, it has a detrimental effect. This is what the article says. It says, with higher rates of sexual activity, we are now seeing higher rates of depression. Studies are also beginning to show that the more relationships a person has, the more detrimental to future commitment it becomes because they are training their body and brain to only do short-term commitments. This is one of the reasons why we always tell you and the scriptures say to you that you're supposed to wait. You walk through all of these stages, figuring out getting to commitment at the end to where you get married, and then you throw sex into that mix. Because if you throw sex into it too early, you don't get over and through the infatuation stage. You don't get through the reality phase. You don't even really get to the commitment stage because sex jumbles all that water. And once you walk through it and you get married through sex on the backside of that, it sits over it like a covering of grace. And it is beautiful. This is the understanding that God has called us to be a certain type of people. We value what he calls us to. And we don't give our bits and pieces of ourselves to a lot of people. We test. We see what's happening before we begin to trust. Relationship, intimacy, it all takes time. But the biggest place of testing that you constantly see throughout the scriptures is when it comes when somebody wrongs us, just like Joseph's family wronged him, when someone has hurt you deeply. And scripture seems to indicate over and over that it is okay to take some time to see if people are truly repentant in that. And you'll see that I'm not just jumping in and finishing this and giving you a little bow in just like two weeks. And look, here's the end of the story. Everything's all okay. I'm making it last like three and four weeks because this is what happens. It takes almost two years for this whole story to come to resolution. And I wanted to take some time with you. So every day you walk out, you're like, oh, well, what's going to happen? I don't feel like we've got resolution. That's because that's what reconciliation looks like. You don't get reconciliation fast. It takes time. It is slow. You've got to work through a lot of things. And and when I talk like this, I don't want you to to think that you're not supposed to seek out reconciliation, that people are supposed to seek you for reconciliation. Our God first sought us. Our God was first reconciled to us. And so we go out and we seek reconciliation with others. That doesn't mean we jump into a relationship with people, again, who have hurt us, but you take time, but you seek out that reconciliation. See, when when something happens in a relationship with us, like, like say a family hurt you like they hurt Joseph, you know what our initial response is? We'll just trash that relationship. We'll get rid of it. I'll go find some new friends. Or maybe you're married and, and, it's, and it's just terrible and hard. And you can't figure out how to make things work. It's so much easier. Let's just trash it and then just I'll just get another wife or get another husband that, that loves me better. Well, eventually you're going to be in the same spot again. You have to find a way to walk through these issues with reconciliation and trust and hope and grace like God calls us to. It is not necessarily easier to find new friends. It's, it's easier to keep your relationships shallow is what it is. But when you find true friends, you walk through hard things with. That is when you understand more and more the depth of what God calls his people to. And you see with Joseph, he is always open to this possibility. And it's going to take almost all the forgiveness on his part. His brothers are going to get blessed. When I'm sure in the back of his mind, he wants his brothers to suffer for what they did to him. But he tests. He takes his time. He guards his family. He doesn't take his family and go, oh, look, here's my crazy brothers. Meet my wife and my kids. He doesn't do that. He protects his family from them until he knows he can trust them. But he is actually always pursuing this reconciliation from the moment that he sees them. 
from the moment that he sees them. You have to understand there are actually three people in this story. Okay? There's Joseph. Okay, you have Joseph. Maybe you're like Joseph. Maybe you have been sinned against. Maybe someone has hurt you really bad. What do you do? You keep on going, just like he did. You serve because you have been forgiven by God for all the garbage that you have done to other people as well. And so you bless others around you. You love God and you move on. I mean, you see, Joseph likes to cry, right? But, but he doesn't get, become an emotional basket case. He, he deals with his, his emotions and he moves on and he trusts God. I mean, some of you, not that you have to forget what's done to you, but you have to work through that and get to the other side. You must move on. Because it could be like for Joseph, 20 plus years before any resolution comes to the fact that somebody has hurt you. But eventually your life can get straightened out. But you must first focus on who Christ is and what he is doing and how he's working through you. What has happened to you in your past does not need to define you forever. The second people in the story are the brothers. Maybe you're like the brothers. Maybe you have done evil to other people. Maybe you have hurt those around you. Maybe you've lied. Maybe you've gossiped. The lesson is that here the only solution is repentance. And if you go to somebody and you apologize to them for hurting them, if they start to put you through some tests, don't get frustrated. You keep living the life that God calls you to. You show them the true change that God has wrought in the midst of your life. Because in the story, you know, we've seen that the, the brothers through life circumstances are coming to a place where they are trusting God, where they're letting God guide them in all things. And now, now they're reconciled to God, and soon they'll be reconciled to Joseph. This means for us, when we sin, we simply say it. We say what we've done. You're honest. I did this. And then you prove that your life has actually changed the power of who Christ is. Because the third person in the story is always the first person in the story, and it's always Jesus. It's always Jesus. Because the problem in our lives is sin, and the answer is Jesus. Joseph's God is Jesus. I believe it is Jesus who showed up to Abraham, his great-grandfather, at the Oaks of Mamre. I believe it is Jesus who spoke to Noah, Jesus who spoke to Isaac, Jesus spoke to Jacob, and Jesus who speaks to Joseph. I believe this because Jesus is a God of reconciliation and only he knows what to do with our sin. In Psalm 139, the author says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. That's the word test. Test me and know my thoughts. The author invites God to test him, to know what's going on deep in his heart and reveal that to him because the amazing thing throughout the scriptures is God constantly reminds us that he is the one who is faithful, that God can always be trusted. Jesus, when he comes to earth, he's betrayed by his brothers and by his friends. He knows what it is like. And what does he do? He forgives. And because he forgives, we can forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are first reconciled to him and then to other people. In the Genesis narrative, God is working on everybody's life and everybody's hearts. And in the end, because everybody starts to seek and follow who God is, he works everything out. Because when we grow closer to God, we will grow closer to each other. It is natural that that has to happen. You grow closer to God. This is why if you're a married couple and you guys aren't praying together, if you guys aren't uh, seeking God together and and talking about spiritual things together, you're only going to be able to grow so close. But the closer you grow to God, the closer you will grow to each other. That's why it's important in your marriages to begin to do this. In all of our friendships, in all of our relationships, we grow closer to God, we grow closer to each other. And what you have to see in the story is that that's where we're kind of leaving this right now. Because you might think, oh, I'm irritated. You've got to bring this to a close. You've got to figure this out and let me know so I don't walk out of here all, what's going to happen? It all works out, all right? 
It's like Titanic. You know the ending, but you saw the movie anyway. Whatever, okay? It, 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 it's all, it's all going to work out, but you need to take time to walk through this, to step through it, to understand what's going on, because reconciliation takes time. You may step into somebody's life that you have wronged and say, I'm sorry, and it takes years before that actually comes to a place of trust. Somebody may have hurt you, and they may walk to you and say, I'm sorry, and it may take you years to get to the place where you can fully trust them again. That's what it is like. It takes time. And so we take time, bit by bit, step by step, because our God is a good God who has first reconciled us to him. And we must remember that and live in that. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every single week. Communion is a place where you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I, so that we can be a people who understand that our God is first reconciled to us. And we then live a life that reflects that reconciliation, how we treat others around us and how we love and how we offer grace and how we offer hope because it has first been done to us. It is not a thing that makes God love us more. It is the response to what he has done because God is infinitely gracious and through the person of Christ, infinitely good to you and I. The band's going to come up. They will play a couple songs, and as they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you're in a place where maybe you've wronged somebody or somebody's wronged you and you haven't been able to get past that, they would love to pray with you. Uh, maybe give you some steps of how to start to do that, how to you know, move forward in that, because pain is always really hard to get through. But God calls us not to be people who just wallow in the midst of our pain, but to people who actually serve and love and follow Him. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship. So you have that opportunity every single week. And there's some food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat and meet somebody else. Maybe invite somebody else to breakfast or lunch or dinner sometime this week. You can grab some questions on the back of the, of the little Genesis notes and maybe ask each other these questions. You know, how does really growing closer to God grow us closer to each other? How does that actually look like? How does that work? You know, what are the, maybe some of the things in your life where you've had to go and ask somebody and say, you know, can you forgive me and try and restore relationship? It's okay. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's, there's a couple places in your life where someone has hurt you, and you've got to extend forgiveness first, and that's where you start, and that's what you do. Because I'll tell you, our God is a good God who offers us grace and forgiveness and hope and life. And so that's how we want you guys to live because it reflects who he is and what he has done and, more importantly, what he continues to do through the life of his people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as your people, have us honor you by how we live our lives and how we seek reconciliation with those around us. Father, for those of us in here who have maybe hurt somebody else, I ask that you would give us the strength and the conviction to go and apologize and begin to try and restore relationship. And though it may take time, I ask that you would give us the strength and the stamina to continue to reflect who you are. Father, for those people in this room who have been hurt by others, I ask that you would begin the process now of allowing their hearts to forgive and maybe being open to the idea of reconciliation. And Father, it, it may take time, but I ask that you re reveal the truth that you have first reconciled to your wayward people, that you have called us home, that you have loved us, you have redeemed us. And we would recognize how undeserving we are of that. And yet you do it anyway. Yet you seek us out anyway. And so we would be a people who seek out the same thing that you have already done in our hearts. And that we would offer love and grace and hope to those around us so that the world would know that you are a God who longs to restore and redeem and reconcile. 
Father, have us live lives remembering how much you have given to us. That we'd be a people who live our lives at your feet, always remembering the graciousness and the goodness of you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.